Let's return in our Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Oh, I want you to, while we're here, embrace this chapter, understand it, and get your mind around it, to see its parts, to see its development, to see Peter's inspired way of preaching and presenting the truth, and how it's going to lead us to the glorious response. Acts chapter 2. Remember, the first four verses tell us about the change that God sent upon this group of believers that were all with one accord in one place. We want to be like that. For him to send his power upon us. Verses 5 through 11 describe the gift of tongues, speaking in other languages that the speakers had never learned that was yet fluently presented to those ears that had grown up in that language. And about 15 different languages are mentioned there. Some heard that and mocked. And some heard it and said, what meaneth this? So Peter explains in verse 15 that they weren't drunk. Then in verses 16 through 21, he explains that this was a fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. Right then and there. This is that. And he notes in verse 20, because it's from Joel. Joel prophesied about the great notable day of the Lord, and that's the destruction of Jerusalem. And so it fits, because not only is God going to pour out the Spirit on the church on the day of Pentecost, it's going to be shortly in front of the great day of judgment in the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. And it says in verse 21, It shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And the salvation in this context which is our second rule of Bible study, is not salvation from the lake of fire, but salvation from the destruction of Jerusalem, the great and notable day of the Lord. Peter then takes up again and summarizes the gospel in verses 22 through 24. Verse 22, Jesus was obviously sent from God. His miracles prove it. You all know it because he did them publicly. Verse number 23, the second verse of his summary Jesus was delivered by the determinate counsel of God. You did not take advantage of him. You did not surprise him. God sent him and fulfilled every prophecy and every purpose in his life by your wicked hands, crucifying and slaying him. And verse 24, God's raised him from the dead, having loosed the pains of death from him, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David had a prophecy that said, he would be raised from the dead. And Peter goes on and explains that by quoting four verses out of Psalm 16, and it's verses 25, 26, 27, and 28. Then Peter uses inductive reasoning by pulling together several facts about David for this Jewish audience. And it's beautiful, inductive reasoning. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David. Look at his boldness. I, I can't Ignore it every single time I read it. I marvel. He's talking to very devout Jews, and he's telling them, let me freely speak unto you. I feel no restriction here in this audience of telling you some things about David that you don't know. Let me help you put the pieces of the puzzle together. Let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. He is dead and buried. Very corrupt. It's been a thousand years. David was a thousand years before Christ. 
therefore being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he seeing this before, David seeing this a thousand years before it happened, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. And when he said we all, he's referring to that group of above 500 brethren, because 500 brethren at one time saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 15. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. And then this concluding statement. And he quotes from Psalm 110 this time. Let's go to Psalm 110 just so that you can see it. When I say those words, I know that there are, there's maybe a quartile, maybe only a decile, I'm not sure, of you that know exactly what psalm I'm referring to when I say the number 110. But in case you don't, let's look at it. And it's okay. If you have cross-center references in your Bible or other ways of noting when quotations are made from the Old Testament where they're found, it's going to tell you that Acts chapter 2 and verse 34 and 35 are from Psalm 110. Here we are at Psalm 110. The Lord said unto my Lord. Notice the Lord, L-O-R-D caps, that's Jehovah, said unto my Lord. David is speaking. There's three parties here. There's David, there's Jehovah, there's David's Lord. Right. Small O-R-D. His ruler. Jehovah said to my king, David, you are king. Jehovah said to my king, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. And it goes on, and come, let's come down to verse 4. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's an oath. Remember we had an oath back there in Acts chapter 2? There's an oath. The Lord hath sworn. So there's verse 1 of Psalm 110. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Come back to Acts 2. Verse 34, Acts 2, 34. For David is not ascended into the heavens... But he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. David is not ascended into heaven. I disagree. Do you disagree? Was David in heaven? The spirits of just men are there. But his body wasn't there. So it can say, and do we fault the Holy Spirit for the way it's worded? David is not ascended into heaven, though we know David is there? No, because it's referring to his body that would sit on a throne. Are you, it's referring to a body that would sit on a throne. Is there a body there sitting on a throne? Amen. The son of David is there sitting on a throne. Yes, from Psalm 110. So it can't apply to David. It applies to David's son, who is David's Lord and David's king. These verses are wonderful. I believe that if I were to have asked you before or during or even today, right now, what are your favorite verses in Acts chapter 2, many of you would have told me 33, 34, 35, or 36. 
Many of you like 33. Many of you like 36 even better. 36 is a powerful verse. It's the concluding verse of this sermon. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Amen. He's David's king. He's this nation's king. Yes, he is the king of the Jews. Remember what Pilate said when the Jews came to him and said, you better change that writing up there on the cross in three languages. You should change it to, he said he was the king of the Jews. What I have written, I have written. The king of the Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Oh, yes. And now they were facing the band. You know, the band that plays before the triggers are pulled for an execution. And here's Peter bringing it before them. Therefore, let all the house of Israel, let all of you Jews understand one thing without controversy or without doubt. Know it assuredly. God has made that Jesus that you crucified, the Lord and the Christ of Psalm 110, which means God is about to make his personal enemies his footstool. Love that verse. Amen. Look at the two therefores in verse 33 and the one in verse 36. You always want to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Because Peter is drawing the conclusions to his preaching. This Jesus, why are we speaking in tongues? What does this mean? You've asked, what meaneth this? I'll tell you what it means. God has poured out his spirit for us to declare old and young, rich and poor, masters and servants, male and female, the wonderful works of God, and for me to preach and show the fulfillment of Joel 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 110, because God's raised Jesus from the dead, whom you crucified with wicked hands, according to his determinate counsel and the foreknowledge of God. No surprise to him, no disappointment to him. It was all according to his purpose, but you are the guilty perpetrators and personal enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom we have seen alive, who is now at God's right hand, according to Psalm 110, and God is going to make his enemies his footstool, and he's going to grind them to powder, as Jesus taught during his ministry. What a wonderful conclusion to his preaching. Verse 33, let's look a little closer at it. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted... And having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost. Where was the Holy Ghost promised? John 7. Out of his belly, he that believeth on me, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. In parentheses back there, because the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Therefore, being by the right hand of God, exalted. What does exalted mean? Glorified. Okay? John 7, fulfilled. John 14, 15, and 16, fulfilled. My Father will send the promise of the Holy Ghost. My Father will send the Holy Spirit. My Father will send another comforter. My Father will come and dwell with you. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, God gave the Holy Spirit to dispense to the church, to Jesus as spoils of his victory on the cross. And now Jesus was pouring it out on the church. Look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 4. Luke has already tipped us off by quoting these words about Jesus. In his, one of his, in his final assembly with them, Acts 1, 4. 
and being assembled together with them, commanded them, this, that's the apostles, that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. When did the apostles hear of Jesus about the promise of the Father? John 7 and John 14, 15 and 16. And now it's being fulfilled. Just wait in Jerusalem for a little while and it will happen. And it did happen on the day of Pentecost. So we're looking in verse 33. Being by the right hand of God exalted, because that's where Psalm 110 says he is, having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, that's Jesus getting the gift, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. You see it because it's a tongue of fire on my head. You hear it because I'm declaring the wonderful works of God. You see and hear this gift of the Holy Ghost that God gave to Jesus according to his promise and Jesus has poured out on the church. If you won't be confused by it, let me show you a little part of that gift. The gift is the personal, permanent presence of the Holy Spirit with believers on earth. But part of it are, ministry, are, are the ministers of the gospel. Part of it are the gifts of the Spirit for just 40 years. Like this speaking in tongues. It didn't happen after 40 more years. It's gone. And let me show you from Psalm 68. Psalm 68, how that God gave a gift to Jesus, who then in turn gives it to the church. But we're only, it's only going to be a part of the gift. It's the gift of the ministry, which is a spiritual gift. Psalm 68 and verse 18. Thou hast ascended on high. Who do you think that might be? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to get confirmation from Paul in just a moment. Thou hast ascended on high. Psalm 68, 18. Thou hast led captivity captive. That's a nice way to put the fact that captivity has been destroyed. Thou hast received gifts for men. Yea, for the rebellious also, like Saul of Tarsus. Why kickest thou against the pricks? That the Lord God might dwell among them. The gifts of the ministry, for God to dwell among his people by their ministry of revealing the will of God to his people. This is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. He led captivity captive by destroying death, which has held us captive. He received gifts for men. He received them from God to give them to men. Yea, even for rebellious men like Saul of Tarsus, Moses, Jeremiah, or Jonathan Crosby, that the Lord God might dwell among them. Now come over to Ephesians chapter 4 and see Paul quote that verse and give it application and change its wording slightly for us to understand that God gave gifts of the Spirit to Jesus and then Jesus gave them to the church. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4 and verse 8. Wherefore he saith, and he's quoting from David, Psalm 68, verse 18. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, does it sound familiar? And gave gifts unto men. I thought it said in Psalm 68, he received gifts for men. It says here he gave gifts unto men. I thought it said there he received gifts for men. Does it, am I right on both counts? Because they're both true. And the Holy Spirit, in this New Testament use of it, is just explaining it a little bit better. It said, received gifts for men, which means he got them to give to the men. And here it just puts, and gave gifts unto men. 
And so, leaving out what's in parentheses, because it's not my point right now, verse 11, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers of the New Testament variety. How many apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers of the New Testament variety were there before Pentecost? Of the New Testament variety. Even John the Baptist wasn't of the New Testament variety. He didn't know about the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. There weren't any. This is new. Back to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. That's what verse 33 is telling us, teaching us, showing us. You're seeing it and you're hearing it, the fulfillment of Psalm 110. Jesus is on the throne of glory at the right hand of God, pouring out this gift in agreement with what David wrote in Psalm 110. And there we have it in verses 34 and 35. David's not up there. So when David wrote Psalm 110, and you read about the Lord said unto my Lord, that's not David being on God's right hand. That's not David's enemies called the Philistines being his footstool. That's you being Jesus' footstool. Oh, he, do you see how he's drawing this conclusion? Forcing them to the understanding of the scriptures to apply to themselves. And so we have 36 with that second, Therefore, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made, it's already been done, that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. It's not a different Jesus. The one on the throne of glory, with power over this nation, whom God is going to defeat all of his enemies and put them under his feet, that Jesus is the same one you said, we will not have this man to reign over us. He's made him Lord and Christ. Amen. Do you know what Jesus is going to do to those that said we will not have this man to reign over us? Those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, Listen to the words carefully. Those mine enemies, Jesus speaking, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. That is serious business, isn't it? That is King Jesus. That nation that said, they will, they will not let me reign over them, bring them before me and slay them while I get to watch. I love a Lord Jesus Christ like that. That's a king. We wish that when our military went and did something, they would do it this way. That's a king against whom there is no rising up. They will, have no, they will not have me reign over them. Bring them to me and slay them before me. So we're back in Acts chapter 2. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified both Lord and Christ, and he is the ruler over this nation. David wasn't exalted bodily in heaven, but rather he spoke prophetically of Christ reigning there, according to Psalm 110. The obvious conclusion, without any doubts or duplicity, is that you Israelites have viciously and wickedly crucified God's appointed Lord, Messiah, and Christ, who now reigns in heaven as king. And I love that. And he came in glory and he came in power and glory and wrecked vengeance on that nation for killing him. And it is a destruction of a city that is worth reading about because it was so terrible. 
and so few know about it. Here we have the first and most spirit-filled sermon ever preached by men other than the Lord Jesus Christ with tremendous visual aids to assist the speaker in addressing God's people, but it has no resemblance to the seeker-sensitive chats of self-fulfillment, nor the God is begging, please, for saying the sinner's prayer to escape hell. It just leaves them right there confronted with Jesus Christ. Prepare to meet thy God. There must be, and there always is, a response to the gospel, but it's usually damning. Most men ignore it, mock it, and leave it. Walk away from it. Make fun of it. The preaching of the gospel is to them foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. It is the glory of God. It is the wisdom of God. And that's what we see in it. It's death unto death or life unto life. And we can tell by your reaction to it. We can tell how seriously you are sold out to serve a king that holds your life in his hands and your breath in his will. How serious you are about it tells us that you are born again child of God and you want to serve him. If you go out of here and you mind the things of this world, you're a belly-worshipping enemy of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what decision you've made. None of that amounts to anything. What amounts is what have you done with your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? What have you done with it? Are we serving him? Men and brethren, what shall we do? That's the right response. And if you're a wife, the Bible tells you what you should do. If you're a child, the Bible tells you what you should do. If you're not baptized, the Bible tells you what you should do. If you fear and love and glorify this King Jesus, you'll want to obey him in every part of your life. Liam, you can be a great son. You can obey your father, your mother, your grandmother the way that the Bible tells you to. You can honor them. Forget obeying them for a moment. Honor them. Say something special to them. Do something special for them. Thank them for being good parents to you. That's honoring your parents. That's what the Bible says to do. Because if you love that Jesus Christ sitting on his throne in heaven, you want to obey him. If you're not baptized, you should be baptized. Why don't you want to be baptized? This Jesus isn't good enough for you? Thank you, Lord. For the Lord Jesus Christ, let's not make light of it. Remember Matthew chapter 22? But they made light of it. And they went to their farms and they went to their merchandise. Both groups were treated the same way by God. Those that killed Jesus and those that made light were both treated the same way. They were destroyed by the Roman armies. Well, I've never killed Jesus. If you're not doing everything right in your life to please that Lord Jesus Christ, he has the right to punish you for it and to punish you severely. You say he wouldn't kill a Christian. You tell me what happened to the church at Corinth because they took, they took advantage of the Lord's Supper the way they did. There were many weak, there were many sick, and there were many already in the church cemetery. You tell me what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. They didn't kill the Lord Jesus. They gave a huge gift to the church that appeared to be approximately the amount of land that they owned, but they kept some back for themselves and lied to the Holy Ghost and were dropped dead. Sickness isn't all by natural causes. That's a foolish medical profession that doesn't understand anything about spirit, soul, and body. 
There's a warfare going on, and when we sin against the God of glory, we bring upon ourselves judgment that affects us in more than just our spirit. It affects our bodies, it affects our finances, it affects our nations. He turns nations upside down like he did this nation. Let's come to the glorious result. We've all got to ask, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? That's my point. Ah, oh, this is a Savior worth believing. Amen. Uh, this is a Savior worth confessing with your mouth, the Lord Jesus. This is a Savior worth being a fool for in a pool for baptism. Yes, clothed and cold. It's going to be cold today. That makes it exciting. I wish we could break some ice off the surface and I could get my dad to do it for me. <laughs> For this Lord Jesus Christ, what won't you do? If this were preached very often, and I wish it were preached more often, would we be able to be martyrs for the Lord Jesus Christ? If this were preached enough, could we be martyrs for the Lord Jesus Christ? Men have gone before us that were martyrs. But with that kind of a Savior, he died for me, I can die for him. And you know what kind of strength he gives in those days? We got it in the year 2015. Every Sunday, our brother Stephen got in this pulpit and shared five to ten minutes with us of a martyr. And when they died, did they have the power of the Holy Ghost in them? They were praying for forgiveness on their captors, and they were singing songs of praise. We can have that kind of victory. Let's get to the response. Verse 37 through 40. Now when they heard this, hold on. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. I hope that when I read that 40th verse now to you, it makes perfectly good sense. Because they, what shall we do? Men and brethren, what shall we do? We know that we're now in trouble. We know that the scriptures are being fulfilled with us as the enemies to be made his footstool. And so Peter says, save yourselves from this untoward generation that is going to be brought before Jesus Christ and slain. And they were slain. 1.1 million. Our nation threw up its hands and still does for an event 16 years ago of 3,000 that never felt a thing. Some of them. I'm not making light of it. But 1.1 million that starved to death? 1.1 million? Jesus said it was the greatest tribulation ever brought on this earth before, then, or would follow after. As far as one city being destroyed in the pain and suffering that went down in the city of Jerusalem. I I hope that you can see now where verse 40 fits in with verse 36 and fits in with verse 20 which mentioned the great and notable day of the Lord, verse 36 tells us Jesus is Lord and Christ in the spirit of Psalm 110, where God is going to make his enemies his footstool. God is going to defend his son and put those that did not like his son under his feet. God loved Jesus Christ and still does. 
when you mess with Jesus Christ and neglect him and you are a belly worshiper because you mind earthly things, you bring the wrath of God upon you. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter if you read your Bible. It doesn't matter if you pray. If you mind earthly things, you are a belly worshiper. Do you want to read the end of those men? It's in Philippians chapter 3. It's the men that make light of Jesus Christ. We don't want to do that. These men asked, what shall we do? Sometimes the gospel pricks, sometimes it cuts. Notice in verse 37, it's now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. But if we turn over to chapter 5 and verse 33, it says they were cut to the heart. 5.33. When they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. That is to kill the apostles. Or we come over to chapter 7 and verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth and they stoned Stephen to death. That's the difference in the gospel. You want to fight and criticize and nag about the pastor. Forget the pastor. What about the Lord Jesus Christ of glory? What are you going to do with him? What are you going to do with this day the world stood still? And Jesus Christ was presented to that nation and a warning was made of what would happen to them if they neglected him. We don't live then. We live now, 2,000 years later. But Jesus is coming again with his mighty angels in flaming fire to take vengeance on all them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So because we don't live in front of 70 AD, but we live in front of the second coming, don't think it's easier now. Jesus is coming to destroy those that do not obey the gospel of his son. Unless the Lord opens hearts like he did Lydia, men hate the gospel of Jesus Christ as their Lord. Unless a man is born again by God's power, he cannot discern, hear, or see the kingdom of God. Gospel preaching is only seen as God's power and wisdom to those already saved. And if you love this Jesus, and if you want to be baptized in his name, and if you want to obey him, it shows a power has been exerted on your behalf to give you a new nature. It's called being born again, being quickened, being regenerated. After hearing Jesus was Lord in Christ, they were convicted to do anything God wanted them to do. Regenerate men react that way to truth. When Paul went to Ephesus and he preached and the seven sons of Sceva got abused by a devil-possessed man and Paul preached, they brought all their books of magic and the value was 50,000 pieces of silver and they burned those books. That was a bonfire that would have made Guy Fawkes' day look good. A bonfire of books of magic worth 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a lot of papyrus, paper, and covers and leather being burned up. Because men change when they hear the gospel. These men are changed. What shall we do? We understand now that we have the Lord Jesus Christ coming as a conqueror. Do you know what he told Caiaphas and Annas, the high priest? Yes, I'm the son of God, since you asked me under oath right now. But I want to tell you, you're going to see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven in power and great glory. When did Jesus come in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory while Caiaphas and Annas were still alive in the destruction of Jerusalem? Amen. Because he said, there be some of you standing here that shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. When he comes in his kingdom, he was going to be king. When he came as a king, 
what was he going to do to those that would not have him reign over them? Do you, do, you, yep. do you understand the New Testament, how it all fits together? And this was one great preaching service. Amen. And this is one glorious response by the power of that same Holy Spirit. Men and brethren, what shall we do? I don't hear anything about drunkenness now. Hopefully those that said that left. And went and watched an NFL game. So that they could be taken unawares by the Romans. Two shall be in the field. One shall be taken, one shall be left. All of our Arminian past destroyed that passage. The one that is taken is the one taken by the Romans. Because in the context, Jesus explained, they were all marrying and giving in marriage in the days of Noah. Then the flood came and took them all away. The ones taken are the ones taken and slain by God for their sins. The ones that are left, and there was only eight in the ark, the ones left are the ones that fled to the mountains of Pella across the Jordan River and were saved from the destruction of Jerusalem. We have, we have had the Bible messed up so much by people in our past who told us that two shall be in the field, the one shall be taken in some secret rapture, and the other is going to be left to have to deal with the United Nations and some guy with a glowing 666 in his forehead. Unbelievable idiocy. Unbelievable ignorance of the word of God. It is what happened with the destruction of Jerusalem. It is judgment that came and took them away. That's Matthew chapter 24, Luke chapter 17, and other places in the Gospels. Look at Luke 3 with me. Luke 3. This is what should happen when a Baptist preacher comes around. I just don't like the way he dresses. I just don't like the way he preaches. I just don't like the way he eats. He talks about bacon all the time. <laughs> well, what about a man talking about grasshoppers and honey? Which do you prefer? Let's go out to eat afterwards. I'll get bacon, and you can get grasshoppers and honey. This is John the Baptist. This is a Baptist preacher. You want to mock him? You want to play with him? Luke 3, verse 8, verse 7. He said to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, you think my speech is a little rough at times? You ain't heard nothing yet. Look at that. O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Do you know what wrath is under consideration? We've learned, haven't we? It's not hellfire. It's Roman fire. Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance. Isn't that what Peter's going to preach? Repent and be baptized. Verse 9, and now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. This is something that was about to occur. Verse 10, here we go. And the people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? And that is what we should say today. What shall we do then? Every wife should say it. Every husband should say it. Every employee, every master, every grandmother, every son should say it. What shall we do then? We should do what the Bible says. Here's John. He has three groups in his audience. What shall we do then? The people ask. 
He answereth and saith unto them, there's nothing you can do, just invite Jesus into your heart. Look at what he said. He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. Charity, brotherly kindness. We'll pray for it on Thursday evening. I'll, I'll find out how many see verse 10 and believe it. Verse 12. Then came also publicans to be baptized and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed you. A publican is a tax collector, and sometimes they padded their pockets by charging the populace more than the government required for, of them. And so John's answer was, do your job honestly as a tax collector and do not charge the people anymore, even though you do have Roman authority behind you. Verse 14, and the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, and what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, that is unnecessary violence, by occupying soldiers, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages, and don't make up for it by stealing from the populace that you're governing. That's preaching. That's answering. And that's an invitation. And there was nothing about inviting Jesus into your heart. It was what you should do, depending on whether you were the segment called the people, or the publicans, or the soldiers. He didn't say lay down your arms and become a Quaker. Right. He didn't say I don't believe in taxes because every man's a free man. But he did say some things. And it's back to Acts chapter 2. Brethren, help me finish. It's your fault. <laughs> Acts chapter 2. It's beautiful. Yeah. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. Lord, who art thou? Right. I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Why kickest thou against the pricks? Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? He knew that Jesus was king. Do you think he had heard these sermons? Oh, yes, he had heard these sermons. And they were pricking him. Why kickest thou against the pricks? Why do you kick against the pricks? He had heard these things, but he hadn't done anything about it yet. Who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Well, I'd like you to go preach to Gentiles, and I'm going to abuse you for the rest of your life for what you've done to my church. Lord, I'm ready to go. And as soon as he received meat and got his vision back, he went straight into the synagogue in Damascus and preached Jesus Christ, Amen. knowing that for the rest of his life he was going to be abused. Shipwrecked, stoned, beaten five times. What do you have to do to serve Jesus Christ? It's so little. Love your wife. Love your children. Ah, The simple things that the gospel gives us. His commandments are not grievous. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. This is verse 37. And said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, repent. The first thing we do is repent. What is repentance? I am wrong. God is right. I'm changing from here forward. My favorite expression of it is in Job 33, where Elihu explained to Job how repentance ought to be made. I have sinned and perverted that which was right and it profited me not. Three steps. I have sinned. I have perverted that which was right, and it profited me not. 
I have sinned. You gave a law. I broke it. I perverted that which was right. Your rules for this part of my life are right, and I perverted them. I am the perverse one. I am a pervert. Because what you want me to do in this part of my life is right, but I perverted it. Third, and it profited me not. And Lord, I'll go ahead and tell you, it has not brought peace in my life to do things my way. I'm a pervert. I have perverted your right way of doing things. I have sinned and broken your law. That is repentance. And you turn away from it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 says about those Thessalonians, they turn from their idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. A total transformation of life. And we want to do it every day. Wherever we've been neglectful about doing it in every nook and cranny of our lives, we want to find those little areas and destroy them. It's repentance. It's not Jesus, will you be my savior? How do you show the works for meet for repentance? Huge changes. How did Zacchaeus do it? Zacchaeus drops out of that tree. The whole crowd murmurs at him. He re Lord, Lord, right now I'm going to sell half of my assets and give to the poor. And if I've wronged any man, I'll restore fourfold. Jesus said salvation has come to this house today. That's what it means. Where do you need to change your life to serve the Lord Jesus Christ better? Change your life. That's repentance. Repent and be baptized. After you have repented, then get baptized by identifying yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember this morning? Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him. By being baptized, you identify with Jesus of Nazareth and own him as Lord and Christ. By submitting to the foolish ordinance of going down in water clothed and having someone else put you under water and raise you up again. It's beautiful. Amen. It's identifying with the Lord Jesus. It's being a fool for Jesus' sake. Repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Take a knee and take his sword on your shoulder. Be knighted as a son of God by getting in the waters of baptism. You want to save yourself from this untoward generation? Repent of your sins. Repent of, of rejecting Jesus Christ. Repent of crucifying him. Repent of every personal sin in your life and get baptized in his name for the remission of sins because he is the only savior. He is the only way to be saved. It has nothing to do with your temple. It has nothing to do with your priests. All the animal blood that's been shed cannot redeem a single sin. And the remission of sins is by Jesus Christ alone. Yes. Repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus right. for the remission of sins. It cannot mean getting baptized in order to wash our sins away because Jesus washed our sins away by his own precious blood. The Bible says that by the obedience of one, many were made righteous, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says by himself he purged our sins. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. It is a figurative, symbolic identification with Jesus Christ for the remission of sins by his death on the cross. That is what the verse means. Because 1 Peter 3.21 tells us baptism is a like figure of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. It doesn't put away sin. It doesn't remit sin actually. But it's the answer of a good conscience toward God. How can a man have a good conscience toward God and yet remit his sins in the waters of baptism? If he has a good conscience toward God, his sins are already remitted. But baptism is the answer of a good conscience.
It's by identifying with Jesus Christ to thank God for sending his son to die on the cross to pay for my sins. And it's the symbolic figurative way of thanking God because the like figure wherein even now baptism doth save us. Baptism only saves us figuratively. It only figuratively remits our sins. This verse isn't any more difficult than 22.16. 22.16, Ananias said to Saul of Tarsus, Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Well, how do you wash away your sins in baptism? Figuratively. Because you identify with the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you need more than that, then go look at the outline and click on the links that are there from our website about Acts 2.38. Yes, the Church of Christ says, give, give me an axe and two thirty-eights, and I'll whip any Baptist preacher in the world. Verse 39, for the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. As many of you ask, men and brethren, what shall we do? As many of you repent, as many of you are baptized by the work of God in your life, the promise, what promise? of the Holy Spirit, verse 33, and having received the Father, the promise of the Holy Ghost, for the promise, it's the last part of verse 38, ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, for the promise is unto you and to your children and to the Gentiles that are a long way off from Jerusalem, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Who are the called? The ordained, appointed, and predestinated ones that are going to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just called by the gospel because many are called, but few are chosen. If you make it the call of the gospel, then you've got this great big number that have the gift of the Holy Ghost that aren't even elect, and they're not even going to heaven. The call here is what the Bible uses the word call. It's a man's vocation, and our vocation is the sons of God. And the, the synonyms in the New Testament of the word call are appoint and ordain. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many mighty, not many noble, not many wise are chosen. So there's another synonym for called, chosen, appointed, ordained. The ones that God has chosen for eternal life, for the promises unto you, if you'll repent and be baptized, and to your children, and you can receive the gift of the Holy Ghost that we have, there's no difference between you and us. God, through Jesus Christ, will pour out the same Spirit on those that repent and are baptized. And the Church of Greenville in the year 2017, because they're, they're afar off. Even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And he's called us, he's chosen us, appointed us, ordained us, and called us unto eternal life. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Do you know how important the destruction of Jerusalem is? With many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Is it something that should be brought up once every ten years? It's throughout the, both testaments. Deuteronomy 18, I'll raise up a prophet like unto Moses. But I'm going to tell you something when I raise up a prophet like unto Moses to you, nation of Israel, that don't want to meet with me. You don't want to meet with me at Mount Sinai because I'm just a little too loud, a little too scary. You don't want to meet with me. Your words are good. I'll raise up a prophet like Moses. He can meet with you. But I just want to warn you. Anyone that does not obey what that prophet says shall be destroyed from among the people. That was Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 28 and verse 68. The Jews would be sold as slaves into Egypt and be back in Egypt at the end of their days when their nation is over, even though their nation started by being taken out of Egypt. 
they would end up back in Egypt. And the ones that survived the destruction of Jerusalem, about 90,000 were sold, and it depressed the slave market in Egypt. Titus records it. The Bible says so. In Deuteronomy 28:68. the price would fall because of the large influx of slaves out of the city of Jerusalem. That's, that's the Old Testament, way, way back in the books of Moses, about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And it just goes right through the pages of Scripture with many other words. And so from time to time, once in a while, when the context tells us to do so, we bring up 70 A.D. It's not our sacred cow, and we don't get some personal pleasure out of it over any other passage of Scripture. But I want you to notice, with many other words, did he testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves. There was a salvation that they could partake of that was not based on Jesus Christ dying on the cross for them, but on them when they see the armies encompassing Jerusalem to flee the city and head for the mountains. And they did. Because Jesus had told them exactly how to do it. But anybody that didn't believe on Jesus Christ wasn't going to do what Jesus Christ said, wouldn't be reminded of it when they got together and had preaching services like this. But here's Peter. I hope you understand verse 40. It's just beautiful. It helps put this thing in perspective. It helps us understand the importance of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. The most important words are in verse 37. Men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter's answer, repent and be baptized. If you have any sins that need to be repented of today in your life, repent. If you haven't been baptized, get baptized. Keep the commandments of God because Jesus is king. And he's coming again. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.